We are going to be in Genesis 25 this morning. If you want to uh, follow along, grab the, uh, the white notes in front of you. It says this week on it, a little white card. Um, it's got, uh, or the basket underneath your seat if you're on the front row. Um, there's not only sermon notes in there, but there's also a quick view of the calendar. If you're like me and you continually forget to add things to your calendar, um, take that home with you. There's some, some, just some quick view reminders of the things coming up. Um, we are continuing in our sermon series, um, The People of God. I want to get uh, started soon because we've got a lot to cover today. Um, if you're visiting with us today, especially glad to have you. Uh, we started this sermon series around four weeks ago, walking through the Old Testament, which is um, oftentimes a neglected part of the scriptures. And uh, we are walking um, through the different primary characters of the Old Testament, uh, looking at their stories and what their stories have to do with the bigger story that God is telling through the Bible. Um, from here, what we hope to do is to have a more accurate understanding of each of these characters and, and what God is doing in their lives and what each one has to do with the bigger story of the Bible, but also that you might uh, discover how God is working in your story and what your life and your story has to do with this same redemptive narrative that begins unfolding in the scriptures and continues to unfold even today, even right now as we sit here together. And so that's our hope through this sermon series. And so today as we get started, we're covering Jacob. I'm excited to talk with you about Jacob this morning. Um, a couple of things from the beginning, though. Um, first of all, to fully understand Jacob's big God moment and what his life has to do with the full narrative of the scripture, we have to first have an accurate view of who God is. Okay, I just want to say that, even though that's true of every character in the Bible, with Jacob, it's going to be essential that we understand the God he is interacting with is a sovereign, almighty, holy, completely other than God of the universe, not this buddy version of God that we have in our day and time or some other version of God where we make him out in our image or make him to be something that we like that's warm and cuddly. We need to see God as the God of the Bible. Second to that, to fully understand what's happening in Jacob's big God moment, we really need to set it within the full narrative of his life, which means we've got to cover a lot of ground. So we're going to cover around 10 chapters today, just touching down at key points, and I'll fill in the blanks as we go along. But we're going to start in Genesis 25 at the beginning, uh, before Jacob was ever conceived in his mother's womb, what God has to say and what God is doing. So we're starting in Genesis 25, verse 19. This is where we'll start. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And that was a mouthful. See, so last week we were looking at Abraham. God had made Abraham this promise. He believed the promise. God counted him as righteous. Then Abraham had a son, Isaac. And at the right time, Abraham passes on that promise to his son Isaac to carry it forward for the future generations. Now Isaac has made it to 40 years old. His wife, just like his mom before she conceived him, is barren. Rebecca, she's barren and can't have children. Bar uh, uh, Rebecca is the son of Bethuel, but more important for today, she is the sister of Laban, who will come up in just a little bit in our story. Okay, So that's what's happening so far. No children yet to Isaac and Rebecca. So, verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22, The children struggled together within her, 
And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. So back up. That's no way to break the news that you're having twins. (laughs) The children, wait a second, did you say children? Why aren't we talking about one? Why aren't we talking about more than one? So obviously something's going on in her womb and, and it's, it's, these children in her womb are beginning to, to wrestle and struggle together. And so she goes to the Lord in verse 23 and the Lord said to her, here's what's going on in your womb. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other And make no mistake, the older shall serve the younger. So not only do you have twins in your womb, that tussling about that you feel is really a wrestling match uh, between one and the other, and that wrestling match is going to give way to become two nations that will wrestle against one another. There are two nations in your womb, Rebecca. And not only that, there is one who is stronger than the other, but lest you make a mistake of thinking he is the firstborn, the younger, right? The older shall serve the younger. Now, from here uh, in verse 24, we're gonna go into where uh, the children are born and she gives them names. So verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. No surprise, God said there were twins. Hey, look, there are twins. 25, the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. There's Esau, a little red, a little hairy, came out first, the firstborn, the one to carry on the birthright, the one to inherit his father's possessions and to carry on the family name is Esau. But afterwards, verse 26, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's hill, heel, so his name was called Jacob. Now, the name Jacob is really significant to what we're going to talk about today. The name means heel grabber or trickster or conniver or the one who tries to trip up. So from birth, that wrestling match that was happening in the womb, I mean, it's playing out on day one. Like coming out of the womb, Jacob is wrestling with his brother trying to trip him up, trying to hold him back, trying to take his place. Verse 27, the boys grew up. Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field, a man's kind of man, but look at Jacob. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and Rebekah loved Jacob. So Esau is the man's man. Jacob is the mama's boy. He prefers to be indoors. Esau likes to hunt. He's rugged. Not only that, his dad really enjoys to eat of the game that Esau kills and brings home to the family. And so this family paradigm has been set now. So Esau, his name uh, is really close to the Hebrew word for Edom, which is essentially where he's going to one day settle uh, and and essentially give give way to the Edomites. And we're going to see if you continue following the narrative through the Old Testament, this continual tension and wrestling uh, between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. So what began in the womb doesn't end with birth and doesn't end with their death. It continues on as the two give way to two different peoples, two different nations. Now, what I want us to see from this is that before birth, God's will had been set. And that's gonna be so important for understanding Jacob and you and I understanding our own stories. Matter of fact, 
If you go to the New Testament, Romans chapter nine, the apostle Paul is talking about this moment and he says something I want you to hear about Jacob and Esau. This is Romans chapter nine, just a few verses. I'll start in verse six, first beginning with Abraham and Isaac. Paul's talking about how Abraham, father Abraham, right? He passed on the promise to Isaac and then Isaac will pass it on to his children. Verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Here's what that means. By this point in the story of the Bible, what we've discovered is that the people of God are more than just the nation of Israel, the Hebrews. The Gentiles have been grafted into this family. And so Paul is saying, hey, the promise of God didn't fail. He was actually including the Gentiles way back in the book of Genesis when he made the promise, right? When he said, through you the nations shall be blessed, right? So the nation of Israel moves forward and he's saying, listen, nation of Israel um, is not just the ones who are blood descendants of Abraham. They're the people who believe the promise of Abraham and more people are gonna be involved in this. And so that's why he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed for not all who are descendants of, of, from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But this is what is true. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's a pretty important phrase there, right? So through Isaac is gonna become the name of all of God's people. Then continue reading on, it says, verse eight, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. That's talking about Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was barren. Sarah's gonna have children. I'll check back in with you in a year. She's gonna have a kid. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, talking about the twins wrestling in the womb, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. That's the unfolding of God's will. Not because of the works, but because of him who, was, who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Essentially what Paul is doing is he's looking at that passage we just read from Genesis 25 and saying, listen, the product of Rebecca's womb was God's will. He set his will before these two were ever born. So as the story of Jacob and Esau unfolds, it wasn't like God was waiting to see which one would be faithful, which one would be disobedient. I'm going to pick the better of the two and I'm going to work through him. No, God's saying before either one is born, I've already made my selection. I am going to work through Jacob. Are you sure? The smaller, weaker one? The mama's boy? The heel grabber? The trickster? And so the word of God wants us to see emphatically clear that God's plan had already been set before these boys were born. Now here's what we need to understand. God has a will for your life. And the Bible teaches that God's will for your life was set before you were born arguably even before you were conceived. Now that might catch some of you off guard in the fact that you hadn't thought about that. 
Maybe you've just been living life and you're like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. I hadn't even thought about God's will for my life. I've got this calendar, I've got this job, I've got these bills to pay, I've got these things I like to do, these things I, that I try to stay away from and I've kind of mapped out my life and had no idea God had a plan for me. And so that may catch you off guard as it will catch Jacob off guard as well. Now, I wanna turn to the notes for just a minute. What we see here in Jacob and Esau's story is that God displays his sovereign plan over the lives of his people even before they are born. Now, what's gonna happen with Jacob's story is it's gonna continue to support that statement. So Jacob was known as the trickster, right? And this, as he becomes an adult, plays out in some really big ways. For example, um, the first big trick or, or prank he plays on his brother is he wants to steal the birthright as the firstborn son. And so um, Esau had been out hunting and uh, unsuccessfully, and he came back home, and he was super hungry, just famished. And Jacob uh, had, had some fresh-cooked food there. And so he sees Esau coming in. Oh, Esau, what's wrong, brother? I'm just famished. I'm getting weak. I need something to eat. Oh, well, I, I've got some food for you. You hungry? Yes, that would be great. Thanks. Okay, no problem. I just need your birthright. And Esau evidently was either out of his mind or thought Jacob was joking or a combination of the two. And he, okay, fine, you can have it. Give me some food. So Jacob tricks Esau out of his birthright as the firstborn son. Now, still remaining is the blessing of Abraham that got passed on to Isaac, and, and, and Esau is due to receive that blessing. And so it's late in life, and late in Isaac's life, and he's to the point where his eyesight has begun to fail him. He's an older man. He knows it's about time. I need to bring my firstborn in, Esau. I need to bless him and pass on the blessing. And so he calls um, Esau in. This is a conversation between dad and son. Remember, Esau's his favorite. He's the manly man, the hunter. Esau, come here, boy. I'm proud of you. I'm really proud of the man that you've become. You know how I love to eat the game that you kill. Here's what I want you to do. It's time for me to pass on the blessing. I'm sure Esau's getting excited. This is it. It's the moment I've been waiting for. Okay, I want you to go out. I want you to go kill some game. I want you to prepare my favorite recipe. Not just any recipe. Prepare my favorite dish. And that's how I want to celebrate me passing on the blessing that was first given to Abraham that has been passed on to me. I want to pass it on to you. Well, Rebecca, she's listening. She overhears this conversation. And she's been a part of Jacob's conniving since birth. And so remember, Jacob's her favorite. She really wants him to get the blessing. So she overhears this conversation. Esau heads out to go hunting. Says, Jacob, come here. I've got, a, I've got a plan. I need you to do exactly as I say. I want you to go out to the farm, I want you to grab a couple of goats and bring them in. I'm gonna prepare your father's favorite meal. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go into your brother's bedroom and I want you to throw on some of his clothes, some of his favorite garments, smell like him, feel like him. Just put some, like, some extra hair on your, your arms and the back of your neck. So if, so if your dad touches you, you'll be hairy. And then I want you to take this favorite meal to your father. I want you to see what happens. So Jacob goes along with the plan gets dressed up like Esau. Remember, Isaac's eyesight's failing, brings in his favorite meal. There Isaac is, close to his deathbed, losing his eyesight. Come here, son. Oh, that's you. I can smell you. Mm, did you bring dad his food? Oh, this is so good. It's time. Come here. I'm passing on the blessing to you. 
And in this moment, what happened is the, the promise and the blessing of Abraham that had passed on to Isaac has now been passed on to Jacob and it couldn't be undone. So Jacob's like, yes. Slips out. Now, as you can imagine, Esau comes home a little later with the game as planned. Dad, I got your favorite meal. And there's Isaac. Whoa, 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 what do you mean? Who is that? I just, wait, you were just here. Wait, that must have been your brother. And as you can imagine, Esau's rage. Jacob had done it this time, right? Enough of the trickster, enough of the heel grabber, enough of the conniving little brother. Enough's enough, he's angry. So of course, Rebecca, trying to preserve Jacob's life, said, hey, Jacob, we need to come up with a plan. Your brother is mad. I'm, I'm fearful for your life, so here's what I want you to do. Pack up some stuff. I want you to go to my brother Laban. He will take care of you for a while, okay? Just tell him you're my son. You go spend some time with him. Let's let Esau cool off. Oh, and by the way, whatever you do, don't marry one of those girls out there, those, those women. I, I just want you to go spend time with Laban and then come back home. So we're gonna pick up the story. Now Jacob has fleed his home, right? Esau's angry, fleeing for his life. He's going to Laban, his uncle, to kind of camp out for a while. And on his journey there, he stops to take or to get a good night's sleep. I don't know how good of a night's sleep it was because the Bible says he put a rock under his head. But nevertheless, he goes to sleep with a rock under his head. And we'll pick this up in Genesis chapter 28 in verse 12. I think this is one of Jacob's first big moments with God. And there's a lot about Jacob's big moment with God here that reminds me of my first big moment with God, how it caught me off guard. And so we read in verse 12, Jacob's asleep. He's got a rock under his head. He started dreaming, verse 12, and he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Now, so what he is seeing here in this vision is this ladder going to heaven. And he sees beings coming down and going up, but they aren't people. No, there's no people going up and down the ladder, just angels. And at the top of the ladder, he has this image of God Almighty, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He's there. And here's what God says to him. Verse 14. Actually, let's finish verse 13. The land of which you lie, that you're laying on right now, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, why is that such an important phrase? Because that is word for word the same promise that God made to Abraham. And then Abraham passed that promise on to Isaac, Remember, even though it was done through trickery, that same promise was passed on to Jacob, and now God is speaking that promise to Jacob. I'm gonna bless you, Jacob, and in you, in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. Verse 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, 
surely the Lord was in this place or is in this place and I did not know it. Has the Lord ever caught you off guard like that? Just seemed like a normal night's sleep under the stars, a rock under my head, kind of night. And God steps in and catches you off guard. That's what's happening for Jacob. Essentially what he's saying is God is involved in my journey and I didn't even know it. I know that I tricked my brother out of his birthright. I know that I was part of mom's plan to steal the blessing from him, but God Almighty just endorsed that. It was well beyond my imagination that God would be involved, that God would be here in this place. He was not expecting God to show up. Verse 17 says, he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Verse 18 says, early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Everything about this is initiated by God. Jacob didn't go out into the desert looking for God. He didn't go to sleep that night saying, God, will you speak to me? God, are you here? God, are you involved in my life? He was fleeing from his life. The furthest thing from his mind was that God was involved. And here God catches him off guard with a dream. Shows him this imagery of how to, how to get to heaven, this ladder to heaven, and, and angels are ascending and descending, and God stands in authority over the ladder, and no human beings are able to make their way up or down, and this will play out later on in God's narrative. And he wakes up and says, whoa, God, I had no idea you even cared. I had no idea you were involved at all. If you'll do the things that you promise, you're my God. You will be my God. Verse 22, and this stone which I set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is Jacob's first big God moment. The next one's gonna be even bigger than this, in my opinion. So he continues his journey now to, to Laban. Right, God said, hey, I'll bring you back here. Keep, journey, keep going, but we're gonna come back here. It's gonna be a big deal. So he goes on to the house of Laban. Uh, Laban had two daughters. One was really pretty, one was really ugly. Just putting it in how the Bible puts it. Jacob quickly develops a crush for the pretty one, Rachel. He's like, whoa, 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 I gotta have, I've gotta have her. So he goes to her dad, Laban. Hey, what would it take to get your daughter's hand in marriage? And he's like, well, I mean, just a small price. How about seven years hard labor for me, helping me manage the farm, tending to the sheep, and, and just keeping everything running around here. Seven years, you can have her. Now, think about Jacob's predicament. Well, that's not a bad gig. Why? Because I don't really want to go home right now, right? <laughs> That'll give Esau some time to cool off. I'll get a daughter or a wife out of this deal, Laban's daughter. Then I'll go back home. Hopefully, I can pass things up with my brother. Everything will be cool. So he gets to the end of the seven years, and the trickster gets tricked. Laban, because he's, he's in a predicament, right? Got one pretty daughter and one ugly daughter. He needs both to get married. 
And if I let the pretty one go, man, there's no, there's no hope for her, for Leah. So what does he do? He swaps the girls out on the wedding. Jacob ends up marrying Leah. Didn't know it. Finds out, whoa, now the trickster's been tricked. Comes back to Laban, he's like, ha, 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 nice trick. I don't know if you know it or not, but that's not the one I asked you about. To which Laban replies, you know what, you want Rachel? Yes, okay, you can have her. It'll cost you seven more years. So 14 years hard labor, there Jacob is in the house of Laban, caring for his uh, enterprise, helping it to grow and become healthy, gets to the end of 14 years, all right, Laban, 14 years, you can have her. And he marries Rachel. Between the two wives, he has, at this point, 11 sons. And he realized, you know what? It's time to go back home. Esau, by now, has cooled off. I'm sure of it. It's time to go. So he goes to Laban, hey, well, I'm getting ready to head out. I'm taking your daughters and your grandsons with me. And by the way, I think you owe me some sheep for all my work. And Laban's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, tell you what, you can have all the ones that are, that are mottled and speckled and have black marks on them. You can have those because that's a small percentage of the flock. And I'll just keep all the white ones. And Jacob's like, fair deal. Well, what does Laban do? <laughs> he goes out and he gets all those sheep out of, the, out of the herd and hides them from him. So when he goes out, he's like, really? Where are all the sheep that you promised me? So what does he do? He goes and he marks some up on his own so that he can cut them out of the herd and go. Now, as you can imagine, uh, Laban becomes pretty irate. So now he's got a dilemma because now Laban is chasing him back home. And he gets to a certain point where he begins to feel the tension of Esau and Laban and he stops. If I, if I keep going, my brother is a good chance he still wants to kill me. If I turn around, my father wants to kill me. And so he stops. And what he does from here is typical Jacob. So you would think by this point, right, he's had this awakening. God's made me this promise. God's involved. I didn't even know God was involved in my life. Didn't know God even cared. He does care. He's made me these big promises, right? So he stops, and instead of resting in the promises of God, he said, you know what? I need to strategically plan on how to make sure Esau doesn't kill me. So tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna send some of my animals ahead first. And so he actually sends five groups of animals out in front of him. It, he had also sent somebody to go out and send a message to Esau. Hey, your brother's coming home. You know, he means peace for you and not harm. And so, so that person comes back to Jacob and it's like, hey, your brother's on his way out to greet you. He's got 400 men with him. So you can imagine Jacob's like, oh, this is not gonna go well. So he's sending these animals out in droves. And uh, as he sends them out, after he sends the fifth drove out, you think that would be enough? He's like, yeah, what else can I do? Tell you what, I'm gonna send my wife and children out in front of me, right? Like a good, courageous leader. And so Jacob, he sent out five bribes to his brother Esau. Now he's sent his wife and children out so that, the, that Esau will have mercy on him. And at the end of the day, if something happens to all of that, at least he still has his life. And this is where Jacob will have his next big moment with God. So there he is, he has sent the animals out, his servants out, his children out, his wives out, all to go meet Esau, and he's alone. He thinks by himself. And we're gonna catch Jacob now in his next big encounter with God. This is in Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. So the same night, after he had sent everybody out, he rose and took his two wives, 
his two female servants and his 11 children, he crossed the ford to Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of dawn. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Typical Jacob, isn't it? I need the blessing. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, the man, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, at first glance, when you start reading the story, it just sounds like Jacob encounters a stranger in the night. And for whatever reason, they start tussling, because that's what Jacob does, right? He wrestles. But come to find out, as the night unfolds all night long, Jacob had been wrestling with whom? God. Now, this is why understanding Jacob requires a very high view, a biblical view of who God was, who God is. This is not the God who is your buddy, and all night long, they were trying to overcome one another, and at just the right moment, one got the, uh, the advantage on the other. This is a story of God Almighty, who has chosen to restrain his strength, to show up in his grace and mercy to a guy who doesn't deserve it, and begins to wrestle with him. We see the strength unrestrained in just a moment when God at just the right moment says, watch this, and pops his hip out of place. So when we read that Jacob prevailed, it wasn't that Jacob is stronger than God. That's your buddy version of God. What the scriptures mean to say is that Jacob was allowed to wrestle with God and live. That's a big deal. Like, think about that. God letting you wrestle with him. I know I, I probably overuse stories with my boys, but this is my best understanding of this. So until I had children, any wrestling match I had ever been in, the goal was to win. Whether that was the football locker room, the football field, with my neighborhood friends, if I got in a tussle, the goal was to win, right? That's the goal of wrestling. Until I had boys. I mean, at a young age, Hudson's just barely crawling. I'd let him crawl all over me. And, and to this day, if I choose to wrestle with them, I'm inviting them to engage with me restrained. Now, it won't be true in 10 years from now, but at least right now it's true. <laughs> if I choose, in a second, the deal's done, right? All of a sudden, they're all, it's got the arms pinned. They're all, Daddy, let me up, right? Like I can just, if I want to, if I want to unrestrain my strength, I can topple them like that. Now that's a very, very weak illustration of what God is doing here with Jacob. God is much mightier than I. 
And he is inviting Jacob into this tussle, this wrestling match, which essentially is gonna describe all of Jacob's life. He came into this world as a wrestler, as a tussler, as a, as a conniving little twerp, constantly wrestling against God's will. Like God's will was set from the womb, yet Jacob constantly was doing what? Trying to live his own life, do things his own way, capture things in his own strength. Even though God has said, here's what I'm gonna do through your life, right? Jacob came out of the womb going in an opposite direction, this continual wrestling match between Jacob and God. And here in this moment with this gracious affliction from the Lord with a with a, with a finger, the slightest touch, he dislocates Jacob's hip. And then he does what? He changes his name. What does he change his name to? Israel. What does Israel mean? One who wrestles with God. Now this would be the name of the nation that would come after him. The name of the people who God would call his people the name of the nation that you and I have been grafted into, the nation of Israel, those who wrestle with God. Over and over again through your Old Testament, you're gonna encounter stories of people who wrestle with God. They'll have moments where they're walking in obedience and faithfulness, and they'll have many moments like Jacob where they're walking in rebellion. They are the people of God, and they will wrestle. Think of it this way. In the same way with my boys, by my love and my grace, I allow them to wrestle with me. In a much grander scheme, the God of the universe in his abundant mercy and grace lets you wrestle with him. And if you are in Christ, there is a wrestling match that we call sanctification. On one side, there's what you wanna do. Like Jacob, right? Your will, your means, operating in your strength. And on the other side, there's the Holy Spirit of God drawing you towards holiness, drawing you towards righteousness, drawing you away from your plans and your will and drawing you into what is good and right. The Apostle Paul describes his own wrestling match with the Lord in Romans chapter seven. He said, here's what the wrestling match looks like for me. At times, I know what I'm supposed to do and I can't do the things I'm supposed to do for God. And at other times, I know what I'm not supposed to do and I keep on doing that junk. He goes right into Romans chapter eight and says, what? There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then he describes the wrestling match. He said, here's this war waging within you. It's the flesh and the Holy Spirit tugging on you, pulling on you. The flesh is pulling you away from righteousness and holiness towards your own ambition, towards your own desires, towards your own will. Yet God in his mercy and grace has gently drawn you back by his Holy Spirit towards his will, towards his plan for your life. If you're taking notes, the third statement. In his abundant grace, abundance of grace or his abundant grace, God invites his people to wrestle with him. In order to understand him more deeply and to experience his goodness more personally. Jacob did not go to sleep that night hoping to encounter God, but he did. And after Jacob encountered God, the scriptures say that he was He was full of awe, fear of who God is. And that was exponentially multiplied by this reality that God allowed me to wrestle with him and he didn't kill me. Well, Jacob, how do you know God could have killed you? Because he just did like this and my hip dislocated. 
He could have just breathed on me his righteousness and holiness and I would have, I would have fallen down dead. There's a song we sing here um, entitled Lord of Hosts. And there's a verse about the God of Jacob. I wanna read these lines to you. It goes like this. O God of Jacob, fierce and great, lift your voice to speak. The earth it bows and all the mountains move into the sea. O Lord, you know the hearts of men and still you let them live. O God who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us and win. O God who makes the mountains melt, come wrestle us and win. If you are in Christ, God is wrestling with you. Matter of fact, I would caution you, if God is not wrestling with you right now, challenging you in some way, pulling sin out of your life, drawing you towards holiness, you're not walking with God. I'm not trying to put judgment on you, but listen, you're alive and breathing. You're not done with this life, which means you're still in the process of becoming more like him, this process of what? Wrestling with God, him drawing you towards holiness. The God who makes the mountains melt is wrestling with you, and it is to your good that he wins. Hear me on this. I don't know what God is trying to take out of your hand right now, Potentially there's something that you feel like is really good for you that you want really bad and you sense the Lord trying to pull that out of your hands ever so gently. It is to your good that the Lord wins. What a beautiful, powerful prayer. Oh God, come wrestle us and win. Now we're gonna jump to chapter 35 and land this with this next moment with God. So remember how God told Jacob, hey, I'm gonna bring you back here. So in chapter 35, verse one, look at what God says to Jacob. Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Remember, that's what he called it, Bethel. So he said, hey, I want you to go out to that place where we first met. I want you to spend some time there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now jump down to verse nine. Look at what happens here. God appeared to Jacob again. When he, became, or when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, and no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, once again, Bethel. Now, Jacob's whole life is this beautiful portrait of God's grace and how even through affliction, God pours out his abundant grace on us, right? So from the beginning, God had already set his will on Jacob, right? Even though Jacob's life was continually rebelling and pulling away from what was good and right and holy. Remember earlier I talked about how God has a will for your life as well and maybe this is the first time you've heard that 
And you're like, whoa, I need to think about some things if that's true. Well, here's the beautiful thing about how God works. God works in our lives, even in the midst of our brokenness and our self-centeredness. Isn't that good news? Like your best efforts to thwart the will are like you trying to wrestle with God and win. Notice how the promises of God don't come with contingencies. He didn't say to Jacob, hey, if you'll change your ways, if you and I can just get on the same page, you know, like if you'll just go to church a little more often and if you'll, you know, maybe spend more time worshiping me, less time trying to trick people, more time trusting in me, then I wanna do some cool stuff through you. Oh, really, what, what do you wanna do? Well, if you'll do those things, then I'll bless you. You'll become a great nation. I'll give you the land I promised to Abraham. I don't know, maybe even kings might come from you. That's not God's tone, is it? Like you see God intervening by grace and saying, Jacob, come here, son. This is what I'm gonna do through you. And, and, and we sit and we go, really, him, Jacob? To which God looks at me and says, you, really? Pastor? Right, God unfolding his will with grace and mercy. God wrestles with his people. This is the last statement on your notes. As God wrestles with his people, he inflicts wounds of grace in order to capture our hearts and give us his blessing. I want you to think about that statement. When, when God touched Jacob's hip, did it hurt? I don't know, ask Jason Martin. He just had hip surgery, he could tell you. I'm sure it was incredibly painful. But that affliction, that just gentle touch from God that afflicted Jacob was actually a touch of grace. God afflicting Jacob to capture his heart so that Jacob would understand, oh, I'm not wrestling with a man, I'm wrestling with God. I don't know what your touches of affliction are or have been in your life, but there's a good chance if you think back through your story, there's been moments, maybe even seasons of affliction that now looking back, you can see that they are affliction, moments of affliction tempered with God's grace. God wrestles with his people and he inflicts wounds of grace. Has God ever led you through a hard season that ended in your good? That's what we're talking about. He inflicts wounds of grace in order to capture our hearts. The Lord cripples and he blesses. He gives, he takes away. All of it, unfolding his will and leading us towards our good. I wanna leave you with three reflection questions to think about as we wrap up today. The first one is this. How has God displayed his goodness to you despite, despite your sinful and selfish decisions? Can you think of a sinful decision that you've made or a selfish thing that you've done and yet God still worked in your life? How has God displayed his goodness to you and despite your selfish decisions? Next one is this. How has God used affliction and hardship to awaken you to his goodness? And this final question, what sins and struggles are you currently going through right now that God is wrestling you with, with you on? I said earlier, if you're in Christ, you're walking with Christ, you're wrestling with God. You're not fully there yet. 
There's something in your life right now. God is trying to pry out of your hands ever so gently. He could, with a finger, dislocate your hip, by the way. So it is with grace and restraint that he gently pulls and extracts things out of our life, things that we hold dearly. Is there something that you're holding on to right now that means the world to you, that God is wrestling with you about? Your journey with Christ is this wrestling match between your will, what you think is wise, God's will, and where the Holy Spirit is leading you. And I encourage you today, let God win. Whatever it is, let God win. It will be to your good. I want to pray for us now and invite our worship team to come back up and our prayer partners to come forward. Let's pray together. Father, we are overwhelmed by two things today. One, we are overwhelmed by the might and the strength of your hand. It's truly overwhelming to think that you, the God of the universe, would restrain your strength in order that we might wrestle with you. And in that, we see a second thing. We see your goodness and grace. Rather than standing in your power and your strength and your might and your righteousness and just striking us to the ground, by your goodness and your grace, you invite us into this relationship where you display patience towards us, God. Where you, with mercy, endure our rebellion and you gently wrestle with us. And Father, I just pray for us right now, every person in this room, that we would truly think about what it is right now, God, you are wrestling with us about. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an ambition, maybe it's some sin that we continue to chase after and repeat. Whatever it is, God, today, we, God, we need to let you win. We need to give up. We need to submit. We need to pray like Jesus taught us to pray. Oh God, your will be done. Not just in everybody else's life, but in my life, God. Your will be done. Father, as we stand to sing this song, I pray it would be more than simply lip service to you. That God, this would be our confession, our, our plea, our declaration you are holy God there is no one like you we pray this in the precious and powerful name of your son Jesus